Good morning, Trinity. I wanted to share something with you that I found intriguing. I know that as we walk through the, the study of the Beatitudes, one of the things I have been wrestling with is almost feeling guilty, like I'm like I'm closing out our sermons with a challenge for, for us all to do more, do better for God. And I really wrestled with how to communicate this idea of, of obedience in light of the law and obedience in light of God's grace. How How our relationship to the law is different. Our relationship to obeying God is different now that we're under this, this grace, the covenant of grace. And so um, I was walking out of church last Sunday and Margie Brake was downstairs. Margie, sorry, not Margie Brake. Margie's right here, by the way. This is Margie. You all know her and love her. Um, but Margie was, was captured, uh, caught my ear and said, hey, I want to share something with you. And when she shared it with me, it was just, it was so simple. It, it was just amazing because I'm like, ah, yeah, that's it. That is it. So I asked Margie to share with us all this idea of, of the relationship between law and obedience and the relationship between grace and our obedience. So Margie, would you share with us what you shared with me last Sunday? Sure. So first of all, to give credit where credit is due, it's then I had seen this on Saturday. I was catching up on some lectures as I've been working on my Master's of Biblical and Theological Studies through Dallas Seminary. And so then this was in a lecture on Galatians that was presented by Mark Yarborough. Mm -hmm. And so again, here you have this brilliant guy and on an overhead, he slaps up this super simple thing. And I was just like, so crazy. So what he puts up on the overhead is he says law and he said and so when we had the law what that was designed to create was obedience and so then he says the difference and then through that obedience then we gain the reward now that we are in the church age and we are no longer under law and no longer trying to check the boxes and somehow earn our favor with God, he says now what we have is we are under grace. And with grace, the benefit, what we get from that is then, let's see, AR, is we gain the reward. Right. And yeah. because of the reward, then, then now we have the joyful opportunity 
for obedience. And do you see how different those boxes are? And so when I saw that, I was like, wow, what a great analogy. And as Pastor Dan had been talking, you know, with these different Beatitudes and how we can each struggle to try to be more, to do more ourselves, this was such a good reminder that the first mover is God. And it's because of his actions in our lives that we have the opportunity to respond. We're not under law anymore. We're under grace. We receive the reward of salvation, a relationship with God, and then we have the opportunity to obey as a joyful response. Amen. That The simplicity of it blew my mind. I'm like, yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, that's like, I'm, I'm thinking, man, I should walk away just reflecting on what the reward is, because as I do, I fall deeper in love with God, more grateful and, and it bears the fruit in my life of walking more faithfully with him. You know, like, it, it's just, the simplicity is amazing to me. And, 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 it, it, and it's great to, to finally feel like I'm not being told to do more. I'm being asked to notice God's work in my life more, his salvation and forgiveness, the transformation into this new creation. I think it's such, such a blessing. Thank you for sharing that with us, Margie. And so, Trinity, as we enter into this time of worship together this morning, I want to just read Paul's words to remind us of this, the gift of God's grace is so amazing, right? Paul says in Romans 3, starting in verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That, it's so simple, but <laughs> but hard. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that with us, Margie. We really appreciate it. We have your nearness. You are holy. You are mighty. You are worthy. Worthy of praise. You are mighty. You are worthy. Worthy of praise. I will follow. I will follow. I will listen. I will love you. I will 
my days I will sing to Blessed are 
the merciful. Friday will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Yes, Evan, you are a princess. Thanks, Evan. Thank you for reading the scriptures for us. And again, thank you, uh, Eliza, Henry, Nathan, Gabriel, uh, Joshua, and Isaiah, and of course, Nora. Uh, We are blessed in the reading of God's word uh, as we gather together. And as Evan reminds us, we are princes and princesses of the Lord. And so uh, she's a great example of that. You know, growing up in upstate New York, we, uh, we lived on the eastern side of New York, and so we wouldn't get the lake effect snow that so often goes with upstate New York, like the, the uh, feet of snow that comes from one sto- snowstorm, but every now and then we'd get a good amount of snow. And so uh, my friends and I, we would, we would have snowball fights. Now, here's the thing. When I was growing up, uh, we didn't have a snowblower. In fact, I think my dad was most excited about having kids because in the winter, he would have kids to shovel his driveway, and in the summer, he'd have kids to mow his lawn. Uh, and in fact, I feel like this is a proven fact because uh, as I grew up and I was the last kid in the house, just before I went off to college, he went, went ahead and bought a snowblower. And so I'm thinking, <laughs> you couldn't have done this like 10 years ago, Dad? Anyway, uh, we would get these snowstorms, and, and it was a blast, right? We hated shoveling the snow, But at the same time, we loved it because we could pile all the snow on the corner of the end of our driveway, and then with the help of the plows, we'd have these gigantic piles of snow that you could build snow forts out of. Now, I had this friend growing up. In fact, he was my best friend. He lived right across the street from us. His name was Matt Franzi. Matt, if you're joining us online this morning, what's up, buddy? Um, But here's the thing. We would take these piles of snow and build these awesome snow forts. We'd spend much of the morning crafting it, building it, and then we'd have these snowball fights, epic snowball fights, right? We, we, would, we would sit in our, our self-made snow forts and we'd lob a snowball across the road and into our friend, uh, the other person's snow fort. But after a while, that got kind of boring, right? Because, I mean, you're sitting there throwing a snowball. You don't, you don't even get to enjoy if you hit the person because you can't see them. They're, they're like beneath these huge walls of snow. So then you start getting courageous, right? You, you jump out of your snow fort, you kind of creep along and, and get close, and then you just drop a bomb over the, over the top of their snow fort and then dive back to yours and, and jump over the, the wall and just kind of like cuddle in there and hope that he doesn't come after you, right? Uh, you know, this was, this was fun for so long. Then we started kind of getting more brave, maybe stick your head up and hopefully like be able to peg the guy as he's, as he's trying to throw a snowball at you. You hope that you get that chance. And, and then ultimately, you kind of get bored of that, and it's just more of a free-for-all, right? It's one of those circumstances where you, you jump out of your snow fort, you, you throw some snowballs, you're both out in the open, you're hitting each other, and, and then you, you dive back in your snow fort. Now, these, these snowball fights were always a blast. We had a great time. And all's fun in war, right? All, all's good and, and fun in a snowball fight until someone catches a snowball to the face. Then then things start to escalate a little bit. You know, what, what was this friendly little, you know, snowball fight back and forth suddenly has a level of aggression to it, right? You can see him gritting his teeth as he whips the snowball across the road. Uh, or maybe I'm the one gritting my teeth as I whip the snowball across the road. It, it, it becomes 
less of a fun game, more of like a, I'm going to get him. You know, how dare he hit me in the face? That had ice in it, I'm pretty sure, you know? Uh, and, and so you, you start, the, the, the snowball fight escalates and until it's no longer a fun snowball fight. It's, it's actually, you're looking to make this person feel what you felt just a few moments ago when you caught that snowball uh, to the nose and it, and it like the ice and snow goes up your nose and you're trying to shake it off. You're tearing, not because it hurt, but because you got hit in the nose, right? Uh, you get angry, right? And this would go on until it was time to go in for dinner, right? And, and on a, at least when we were growing up, when, when it was time to go in, we set aside our, our anger and our frustration we didn't actually shake hands, but we kind of came out, we called a truce, we affirmed our friendship, and once again, peace reigned in the land of Scarland Drive as, as we headed off to our homes to go home. Now, I wish that life was so simple. Take away the snow forts, add a few years of life to, to the two of us, and you start to think that maybe my story is very similar, but maybe a little bit different. See, I think on a daily basis, we all face these sorts of battles. It may not be a snowball fight, but the, the smallest word here, or the, the um, kind of thoughtless action there, takes what is just a peaceful morning and turns it into a battle of sorts. A person cuts you off on 95, so what do you do? You speed up behind them and get behind them because you want them to know that you're upset that they cut you off, right? You can't yell at them because they've got their window up, you got your window up, but they can see how close you are in their taillights or in their, their rearview mirror, and you want them to know that you're angry. You know, a family member says something particularly hurtful to you, uh, an innocent comment that they just lobbed over from their snow fort that landed and hit you in the face, right? So you lob a hurtful comment back from your fort. Someone posts something you think is stupid on Facebook, and so you respond, then they respond, then you respond, then they respond, then, then pretty soon you find yourself sitting at your computer trying to think of the most hurtful thing that you can type into your Facebook thread, something to minimize them, something that you think, oh, this will really put them in their place, right? Well, maybe you're the, the victim of assault, and Though things seem calm on the outside to everyone, inside there is a storm that's raging, an unsettledness, a, 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 an opposite of peace, right? So I think there's violence in us, and it's all around us. Our world is characterized by violence, and we've gotten really good at pretending that things are at peace. It doesn't take much for us to see this violence. Right? I, the examples I gave already are mainly those that are relational, emotional, verbal. But, I mean, we can, the, the, the physical violence that we see in our world is the most obvious. It's this internal violence, this, the violence that we do to others or is done to us that I think we need to be more aware of because that violence is everywhere. We may not be on some physical battleground but there is such violence in our world. It comes through the radio waves. It's on our TVs. It comes out of our own mouths. There's violence all around us. Merriam-Webster's Dictionary of, of Peace is this state of tranquility, right? This, the state of tranquility that we all long for. It's a, it's a freedom from these oppressive thoughts and emotions. It, it's a harmony in our personal relationships. It's a ceasefire between two parties, 
kind of like me and Matt did growing up with the snowball fights. But here's the thing. God's idea and this world's idea of peace are still two very different things. We can take that definition of Merriam-Webster's definition of peace and say yes to that, but God's understanding of peace and this world's understanding of peace are still two very different things. See, I think one way that the world seeks to build peace is through tolerance. And tolerance, on the surface, seems like a good thing. It doesn't seem particularly wrong or unhelpful. But the problem with tolerance is that there's no common ground from which we can determine what we should be tolerant of and what we shouldn't be tolerant of. I mean, I think there is a common ground, but we don't necessarily all acknowledge the same common ground through which we determine what to be tolerant of and what to be intolerant of. In this case, the only way we can achieve peace through tolerance is if we, as a society, determine all together to become tolerant of all views, all beliefs, all ways of living, but we've already proven that there's no way to do that because some of the, the beliefs in our world, some of the views, the perspectives in our world are exclusive by nature. Christianity is one of those views. It's not the only one, but Christianity is certainly one of those views where, where it, it, it holds uh, an exclusive view toward an understanding of peace and truth. It, it's this teaching that, that there's only one way to deal with the evil and the violence that we have in this world, and it's through reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ, right? In other words, it's impossible for us to affirm both the Christian beliefs about peace in this world and, at the same time, ascribe to our world's view of peace and tolerance as a path toward peace, Right? Another way that our society has tried to seek peace is by trying to fit a square peg in a round hole. If that square peg doesn't fit into the round hole, well, we just throw it aside and say it doesn't, doesn't fit into our society then, right? If it doesn't fit in with what others accept as good, we just toss it aside. The clearest example of this is something that's newer to our vocabularies. You, you hear it in uh, the political circles and, and, and some of those places called cancel culture. Right now, this word, at least in my mind, is, is something of a derogatory word. I don't like it. I, I don't like it because there's nothing good to it in my mind, right? Uh, if, uh, if you kind of under, understand that this word is one that it's really relative to who's Saying it and who's receiving it is, is how we're to understand it, right? Now, for those who live by its actions, those who live uh, that driven by, or not driven by, but accepting that cancel culture is a tool that we can wield, well, it, it, it makes sense. It, it makes not just sense, it makes logical sense to them, right? This is not a matter of preference. This is, in their mind, it makes sense. If there is someone doing something wrong, we remove them from, the situ- from, from our culture. We remove them from the situation. But for those of us who have received that sense of being canceled, being written off, being excluded from our society, it doesn't make sense. It, it doesn't make logical sense. See, cancel culture is a response to a person or organization who's, who's caused violence, right? This person, person A has caused violence, so person B writes them off as if not even acknowledging them as being a, 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 someone to, to, to spend any time with, be around, whatever. The problem here is that this isn't peace between two parties that are in strife, right? It's really just eliminating one of the parties. 
If I wrote off every person who hit me in the face with a snowball, well, I'd be left with a one-person snowball fight, and that's no fun, right? There's nothing productive about that. There's nothing enjoyable. The, the whole point of building a fort is not so you can sit in it and do nothing all day. It's so you can use it, be productive with it, accomplish something with it. And so if someone hits you in the face with a snowball, you don't just say, no, done, you're not playing with me. Go, you, uh, someone else is going to take your place. You've got you to find peace, right? And, and so that's not peace, just eliminating people from this life. Peace is not just a ceasing of hostilities. And that's something important for us to understand. Peace is not just stopping the violence. It's reconciling the violence. Peace should include grace. And I don't think what I've seen, at least, of the cancel culture includes grace. Peace should include holding one another accountable for our views. It should hold one another accountable for the violence that we have, we, we, we've seen and committed and also allow a path to restoration, reconciliation, and forgiveness. See, I think this is grace. This is forgiveness. That's peace. As a society, we've become very good at the first part of this culture, of holding one another accountable to the violence, and that's good. We need to do that. We cannot see God's peace reign in this world if we go on pretending that violence has not been committed. If, if we kind of give people uh, unmerited grace just because of who they are or what position they hold in society or, or, or how much money they have or what, whatever influence they have, each and every person should be held accountable for their actions. That's a good thing. But as a society, we've neglected to graciously provide a path to reconciliation. We, we, we've neglected to provide a space where people can actually walk this path of the reconciliation that God wants for this world. See, tolerance and cancel culture are, are two examples, really. They're not the only way that our world pursues peace, but they're two examples of how our world strives for, for peace. But tolerance isn't peace. It, in cancel culture, it's not going to achieve peace. Really, what these both achieve, or whatever, not even what they achieve, but what their goal is, is a man-made utopia. A sense that we know better than God, we know how to accomplish peace, and so the way we're going to do that is by forcing the hand of our society to say, this is what we should be tolerant of. This is who we need to get rid of. And then once we get rid of person A, or once we uh, only accept these tolerant views, then we'll have peace. The problem is we have yet to achieve peace by, by pursuing these. Neither of these options will make peace in this world because neither of these addresses the root issue of violence. The violence which resides in man's hearts. See, the, the main difference between our world's understanding of peace and God's view of peace is identifying this root of violence in our world and where it resides. That's really it. It's noticing the origin of this violence, not just philosophically, but, but circumstantially as well. In, in the specific moments, it's understanding that, that, that this violence is happening because of the, the evil, the violence within man's heart, within that person's heart, within my heart. That's what's driving this. Not, not that I want to be right. It's that I have an evil at work in my life that needs to be 
addressed. See, I think our world wants to believe that we're basically good people. We, we acknowledge that, that bad things happen, that there is violence in this world, but I think our world wants to think that we're basically good people, that generally speaking, human beings have the propensity towards uh, selflessness and, and, and uh, not being greedy, that we're people who by nature don't want to commit violence against one another, whether in word or in deed. That we inherently uh, move toward peace. That there's peace within us that we basically all have. But see, mankind has committed this sort of violence since the beginning of creation, since, since the garden, right? Mankind ha- has always lived in that place of, of violence. When God confronted Adam and Eve in the garden for disobeying him and, and eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, did, did Adam stand in front of God and say, Whoa, it's not her fault, Lord. Did, did he jump in front of Eve's way and, and stand between Eve and God and say, God, don't, don't punish her. It's not her fault. Go easy on it. It's not hers. No, he doesn't do that. What does Adam do? He throws her under the bus. He says, God, this, the woman that you gave me, she gave it to me and, and, and made me eat it. That's violence, right? That's lying. That's, that, that's violence committed against Eve and violence committed against God. I mean, I'd like to say that I wouldn't, no, I wouldn't do that to you, Tara, but, but, <laughs> maybe if it was a snake in front of me, I'd throw you in the way, I'd, I'd do that. Yeah, I love you, I love you too, Tara. We'll talk about it over lunch. When, when God showed uh, favor on Abel's sacrifice and not on Cain's, what happens? Cain kills Abel. He, he, he becomes angry and jealous. And in his fit of anger and jealousy, he murders his own brother. So this violence, it, it, it's not out there in this world. It resides in each and every one of our hearts. And until we acknowledge that, until we begin to address it, peace will simply not be realized in our world. I've shared this quote numerous times, and I'm going to probably keep on sharing it numerous more times because I think it's basically, uh, it, it's at, it gets to the root of, of the issues of faith and our culture, right? Alexander Solzhenitsyn said that the battle line between good and evil runs through the heart of every man, and, and, and by man, he means men and women, right? All mankind. I can't agree more with this statement. It runs through my heart. It runs through your heart. And I don't say that in the sense that you are a despicable human being, not worth my time or not worth God's time. I just mean that if we don't acknowledge the, the, the reality that sin runs through each and every one of our hearts, that evil and, and, and the, the potential for violence, not, sorry, not even the potential, violence runs through the heart of every man and woman, well, we're going to miss the point. We're going to be dealing with a job halfway done. And if we're going to deal with violence in our worlds, then we have to deal with that violence that resides in our hearts. If, we, if we're going to address the violence out there, we have to start by addressing the violence in here. Well, there's still one more difference about peace through the lenses of the Bible. See, I think the world is primarily concerned about making peace on a horizontal level, right? But, but the Bible tells us that God desires peace between us and him, as well as between one another. I think historically speaking, as Christians, we we tend to acknowledge that God desires peace between us and him. 
But then something happens in our interpretation from receiving that peace to the horizontal relationship, and we see people as objects to be evangelized, to be saved, rather than allowing God's peace to flow through us and into those relationships that God's given us on a horizontal level. I think God desires for peace between us and him as well as between one another. Peace has both a vertical component and a, and a horizontal component. And, and we can only have peace on the horizontal level if we first had peace on the vertical level, right? Not the other way around. Pursuing peace on the horizontal level alone is called social justice. Pursuing peace on the vertical and the horizontal level is called spiritual reconciliation. It's reconciling the wholeness of who we are between God as well as through man, as well as through the horizontal level. And we need to do both. We need not be solely concerned about our reconciliation with God and disregard our reconciliation with man. That's part of who we're called to be as followers of Christ. One is true peace. One is an unsatisfying, incomplete job. One is actually the peace that God designs. One is peace halfway done, right? And if we're satisfied that seeking peace among mankind alone is enough, then we're satisfied. We're saying we're satisfied with a job that's incomplete. It's like mowing half your lawn and then sitting back and saying, that, that looks good, right? Or feeling good about it. I mean, if you've ever mowed half your lawn or vacuumed half a room, you can't, right? You, you actually can't move on to something else and feel satisfied. It's going to bother you. Well, it bothers me. I, I'm assuming it bothers everyone, but maybe that's not true, right? Or maybe, maybe you think about this in, in terms of quilting. Maybe a better example is thinking about sewing a quilt. What if you sewed a quilt without the batting, right? That, that middle part, that, the middle part of the quilt sandwich, right? It's just not done. It's not what you set out to accomplish, or, or maybe it's rebuilding a classic car. What if you put all this work into rebuilding a classic car but neglect to put an engine in the car? From the outside, it appears complete. It looks pretty. It looks enjoyable. But get in that car, put the key in the ignition, and nothing will happen. It's not actually complete. Put that quilt on, and it won't be warm and cozy like you anticipate, right? Mow half a lot and go crazy for the rest of the day. I, I don't know. I mean, it, it, God wants his peace and his justice and reconciliation to rule this world, right? That's why he invites us to pray, God, your kingdom come. God's kingdom is a kingdom of peace. And it means reconciliation with God and reconciliation with man. But first, that peace has to be planted in our hearts has to be planted in our hearts so as we go out into the world, we carry that peace with us. So how do we become uh, peacemakers as God desires of his people? Well, first we have to have peace. And you can't make peace for others if you yourself are in turmoil, right? Some of the most disappointing moments in my own faith journey, not even as a child, but even today, is looking at certain Christian leaders who, to our own fault, we hold up and we kind of put them on this pedestal as heroes, as, as these celebrities. 
But then something happens, and you see what, what's behind the curtain of their lives, and you see it's just filled with violence and turmoil. And it's heartbreaking because who they are on the, out, on the inside is not who you know on the outside. Who they are on the outside does not reflect who they are on the inside. There is a peace of God, not P-I-E-C-A-C-E. <laughs> I just misspelled the very ending of peace. It's P-E-A-C-E, right? They don't have that peace of God within them, ruling and reigning in their heart, which our, our world needs to see. See, all too often, religious people try to serve others care for other people's needs without truly accepting the gift that God offers us, the peace that he alone can accomplish in our hearts. This is, this is what, what was so profound to me about what Margie was sharing with us about this idea of grace, reward, and obedience. So many of us are still living under the law thinking that we're living under grace. We're living trying to please God through our obedience that he'll then look on us with pleasure and love us more, and reward us. We got it backwards. God's grace gifts us the reward, a relationship with him, forgiveness, and if we'll allow his peace to rule and reign in our lives. And, and, and then as we go out, we're not living obediently like the law. We're, we're actually living in this new creation as obedient people because we desire to live in that life with him. Right? Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, picking up in verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of his hostility, that wall of hostility between us and God, right? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, and so making Peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility, not just doing away with it, killing it, destroying it. And he came and preached peace to, to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. That's God's message. That's Jesus' message. That's his ministry on this earth is to preach that peace. See, becoming a peacemaker does not require a four-year Bible college degree. It doesn't require that you go to seminary and receive your master's of divinity. It's something that you're made into. You're made a peacemaker through Christ. There is a a, a spiritual transformation, a reconciliation that happens when you you acknowledge Jesus as Lord, when you you acknowledge who he is and what he's accomplished on the cross, when when you allow him that influence in your life. He transforms you from the inside out. And part of that transformation is making you into a peacemaker. Amen. See, someone's got someone's to pay for the price of evil and violence that's in this world. And it was, it was supposed to be me. It, it was supposed to be you. We were the ones who owed this debt because of the violence that we, we, we might be able to tell other people we're pretty good. But if we look into the depths of our soul, we've got to acknowledge that violence is there. And we're responsible for it. But instead, Jesus accomplishes true justice through his own death, and he answers for the world's sin. In a little bit, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's a celebration of his broken body and his blood poured out. It's a celebration and remembering his rescue in our lives. 
It's a celebration of that moment where we are transformed into peacemakers. We have no excuse for not being God's peacemakers in this world. He himself is our peace. Peace is not a gift from Jesus. Peace is Jesus. Jesus is peace. One of the key passages of Christmas is Isaiah's prophecy of Jesus' birth. Do you remember Isaiah 9, verses 6 through 7? He says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. What characterizes the reign of Jesus in his kingdom? Peace. Not just peace for a little while. Peace with no end. See, this peace is available to us all. It doesn't matter what you've done in your life in the past. It doesn't matter what's going on in your life right now. What matters is grace. Philip Yancey describes grace, and I love the way he does. I think he's, his definition is the best one that I've come across so far. He says grace is understood like this, that there's nothing we can do to make God love us more, and there's nothing we can do to make God love us less. That's grace. That's God's gracious uh, uh, perspective towards you. That's how he sees you. That there's nothing more you can do to earn his love, to make him love you more, and there's nothing you can do that will offend him more and make him want to drive further away from you. The only thing that matters is receiving the peace that God alone offers us through Jesus Christ. See, many of us this morning have the outside of our lives put together. Things look good. We, we look like we should look as people going to a church. We've got that part taken care of. I, I grew up in, in a church. I, I, I kinda, you you kind of know how you're supposed to be and what sort of answers you're supposed to give in Sunday school. We're good at that, right? And I don't say that to guilt anyone or shame anyone, but, but my point is this. We've got the outside of our lives put together, but inside, we're hurting Our world is a mess. And I don't say our world out there. I'm saying our world in here. It's messy. It's it's the fruit of violence done to us or violence that we've done to others. Do you realize that? Even though you think a word is spoken out from you, it's creating a mess inside of you. Don't walk out the doors of this building without letting Jesus in to make peace. We're standing in the midst of snowball fights, and we keep getting hit in the face with a a cold snowball, and it is causing such violence in our lives. Don't walk out of the doors without letting Jesus in to make peace. Don't log off of this live stream without letting Jesus in to make peace in the privacy of your own soul. Listen, if he can calm the waves and calm the winds on the seas, He can certainly calm the storms in your life. He can address that violence. He he can empower you to seek forgiveness. He can empower you to accept someone's apology and, and, and someone's request for forgiveness. He's able to do those things. You're not able to do them apart from him. But he's able to accomplish it if you let him in. 
and to let him have that place in your heart. Acknowledge the, the violence in your life. Acknowledge that violence, whether the violence that's been done to you or the violence that you've done to others. Accept Jesus into your life today to bring about that peace in your life. Say, Jesus, I want you to do, I, I've seen this pain that I've carried for too long. I need you to come in. I want you to come in. I want you to have that power in my life. I want you to accomplish this transformation in my soul. I want you to lead me to green pastures and beside quiet waters. Now, it's going to be hard. You're going to have to give him control. This is not one of those uh, moments where you, you say, yes, Lord, I, I feel moved to accept you into my heart, and then walk out and forget this moment. You're going to have to let him have control of your heart. You're going to have to acknowledge those moments where he's telling you to do something. You're like, no, nah, I don't want to do that. That's, that's, that's painful. That's hard. You're going to have to do it. You're going to have to trust him that he actually knows how to lead you to a place of peace. You're going to have to actually let him have sway in your life. But trust me, it's worth it. It is worth it. There is no better life for you than starting from this place of acknowledging the power that Jesus has coming into your life and transforming you from the inside out. This morning, there's no special prayer you need to say out loud. There's no special words. Only acknowledge in your heart that Jesus is who he says he is. That he wants to, that, that he'll do what he wants to do in, in your heart in making you into this new person. This, people, this is how we become peacemakers. You, you, hear, you hear Evan read for us this morning, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. You say, yeah, I want to be a peacemaker. How do I do that? This. Let Jesus in. Many of us are living this life where we're kind of like those football players, right? We're carrying the ball, we're stiff-arming Jesus, saying, I got this, Jesus, just let me go 10 more yards. we got to let him in. Amen. And when we do, when we become those peacemakers, here's the promise, we have peace without end. That's what it means to be a, a son and daughter of God, peace without end. We don't have to be offended by others, which is easier said than done, right? We don't have to bite when they say something that, that we find offensive because what they think of us ultimately doesn't matter. Only what Jesus thinks of us matters. And guess what? He could not love us more. We don't have to win an argument that's, that's in front of us on Facebook because God's truth is eternal, and over time you will see that that truth will always reign. We don't have to go on crusades any, uh, anymore. In fact, we never had to go on crusades anymore on behalf of God, right? Accomplishing God's rule and reign will not be by legislating it in the courts. It'll be fighting a war in people's hearts for God's peace. All we need to do is go forth in the peace that God has brought about and accomplished in our lives. In Ephesians, Paul talks about equipping followers of Christ with the armor of God, right? And, you know, we, we grow up learning the armor of God, and it's all good. But there's one piece of the armor that I want to draw your attention to. In Ephesians 6.15, Paul talks about these special shoes. They're, they're shoes that are the readiness of the gospel of peace. 
The, the, the shoes that we strap on and go forth. They're the shoes that when we leave footprints behind are footprints of God's peace left behind. You, you, you walk through, through mud. What happens? You trail that mud behind you. This last snowstorm, we had a blast out in the snow. But when you come inside, without fail, and this is, this is kind of a, a, a kind of disguised pet peeve of mine, you trail that snow throughout the house, right? Now, it's kind of the opposite of this. I'm walking through the, the house with my socks on, and all of a sudden I got cold, wet socks, right? Now, imagine that. Yeah, that's not peace. That is very unpeaceful. But, uh, but imagine that with the gospel. We don't have to... We don't have to win this person over by, 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 by winning the, the logic or, or winning them through rationalizing uh, their, their understanding of Jesus. We can win them over. We can win them into the family of God by trudging around them with God's peace. Every time you spend time with them, every time you enter their home, you carry the gospel of peace with you into that space. We, we leave that trail of God's peace behind us. We're a people of peace, right? Church, when we go out into this world, when we face violent conversations, when, when we come alongside someone who's been wounded, when we see our neighbor beaten and left to die on the side of the road, we have the God of all peace within us, and we carry that peace with us as we go and care for the victims of violence in this world. Christians should be at the front line of caring for those who are wounded in this world. Our world believes, and this is the part that's most saddening to me, our world believes that Christians are actually the ones causing the violence. And that breaks my heart. And in some cases, the world is right. That we, as followers of Christ, are not the ones who are proclaiming and being witnesses of God's peace in our lives, but we're actually ones that are causing violence in the lives of other people. Church, let's allow them into our lives to see God's peace at work in us. But before we do that, let's let God's peace reign and rule in our hearts. Let's let Jesus in. Let him have control let him do that work that we need him to do. And then let's let them in. And as we do, as we, as we walk in the, the footsteps of our Father who is peace, then as we trudge out into the world, we will leave behind us seeds of peace in other people's lives. So put on those shoes. Get out there. Trudge around. Let the world see the peace of God in you. James 3.18 says, And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. A harvest of righteousness, a harvest of people coming into the family of God is sown by those who make peace, in peace by those who make peace. As we trudge the, 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 the snow behind us into the house, People will experience the grace of God, the gospel of God, the the peace of God. And God will bring about a harvest of righteousness. So let Jesus into your life. Let him have authority over your life. Then let's get out there. 
Let's get out there and sow this peace. We don't need to get out there and sow this peace within the groups of people that we gather within the church. We need to get out into our neighborhoods. We need to get out into our schools and not carry our Bibles and proclaim the gospel. We need to live the gospel out in front of them. Let them see the peace of God at work in our lives. Let them see us as a gracious people, a loving people, a caring people, a people who are driven by the word of God. Not so much needing to see the world accept God's word, but let the world see God's word in our lives. I know it's hard. I completely understand that it's hard. And so in a minute, we're going to do something together as a church that helps remind us of what God has accomplished. You know, anytime we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're remembering this moment where Jesus accomplishes this peace for us, where he makes a way for us to have peace, where he deals with the the sin that we have been enslaved to and where he sets us free. Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper uh, at the Last Supper, right? He he instituted this, uh, this act of remembrance when he gathered with his followers on that night before he was betrayed and crucified. And in that moment, he, he, he calls them to remember, remember what I've done. Remember what I've accomplished. And what's interesting is the, the rooting of this remembrance is in the celebration of the Passover. Now, the Passover for the life of God's people was this moment where God rescues his people from slavery in Egypt. Where, where he sends this Passover lamb that they were to sacrifice to spread the blood of the, sacri- the sacrificial lamb that's poured out over their doorposts so that the, the angel of death would pass over their homes and then Moses would lead them out of Egypt when Egypt was in turmoil. And, and so God calls Israel to remember the broken body of this lamb, the blood poured out that was a symbol of God's protection upon them. I get it. When we go out into this world, there's some vicious violence that we come face to face with. And to, to be evidence of God's peace is no small matter. And so we need this moment to remember what God has accomplished, what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. And so when we, when we think about going out, we go out with this remembrance of God's love and grace, the, the, the work that he's accomplished on our behalf. And we're told that, um, that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered with his disciples. He gathered to not only celebrate the Passover supper with them, but to celebrate this new thing that he was giving them. This moment to remember not just the peace that he gives us, but to remember how he brings about that peace in our lives. And it's, it's something that we have celebrated as a church from long before we were even here in Fairfield or in Bridgeport. It's something the church, the body of Christ, has celebrated for eons. And so I want us to take this time, uh, just before we even celebrate this time, I want you to, to take a moment to, to, to invite 
Jesus to, to meet with you and reveal to you those places in your heart, that place in your heart that you need to let Jesus in, to have that authority, to do that work of transformation, to bring about that peace that equips us to go out and be peacemakers. So let's just spend a moment with Jesus now. So on the night he was betrayed, Jesus looks at his disciples and he tells them, this, this bread symbolizes my body which is broken for you. A body which, as broken as a sacrificial lamb, makes a way to lead you out into the wilderness, to make you my people. And so I want you to celebrate this. Remember, this bread is my body broken for you. Shortly thereafter, Jesus took the cup. He gave thanks. And, and he said, guys, this, this blood is the new covenant shed in my blood. This blood is like the Passover lamb's blood covering the door. This blood makes peace between you and God. And not that it made peace once, but all those who believe in Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, from the, believe in his body broken and his blood poured out, accomplishes a peace in our heart that we could never even begin to touch except in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so Jesus looked at his disciples and he invited them, drink in remembrance of me. Father, I, I remember the words in the Gospel of John that you gave us all the right to become children of God in sending your son, Jesus. We want to be sons and daughters of the King. 
We want to be peacemakers who have received and are peaceful, not because of something we've done, but because of the reward of your grace, that free gift that you give us in Jesus Christ. Lord, I I pray that we would receive that this morning. For some of us, it's receiving it anew, and for others, it's receiving it afresh. Let your peace reign in our lives. Through your sacrifice, through your Son. Amen.
Lord's done something for you. Amen. He is a good, good father, right? And, and we're going to look at that in a, a few weeks uh, as we start, a couple weeks, sorry, as we start a new series leading into Easter about how God pursues us, how he's not a God who sits in the distance, but how he comes near through the life of Jesus and pursues us, pursues the lost to, to let us be his children, children of God. Church, I want to remind you that uh, our way of looking at giving here at church is that God desires a generous giver. And so as we look ahead, uh, we, I want to ask you to be praying for us, um, but 
but before I share what that's about, just want to remind you that there's any way of a number, uh, three or four ways that you can give to the work of the gospel here at Trinity. You can give through one of the generosity boxes in the, in the, the sanctuary as well as in the foyer, or you can uh, give online, you can mail your check to the office, any of those things will go toward the work of the gospel of peace going out into the world here at Trinity. Uh, but then I also ask that you be praying for us, generously praying for us as we look ahead toward the end of March. Uh, uh, there's a team of leaders here at Trinity who are going to be gathering to be led through uh, a strategizing and planning time with the Converge National Office, kind of helping us get clarity as to where God specifically is moving us to go with the gospel what he's calling us to do, how he's calling us to be as a church in this new season. We've had to go through a lot of change over the last couple of years, and uh, change is not, I don't like change, I don't know about you, but, but there is good that God is going to lead us into as we go through this change, and we want to make sure that it's from God. And so pray for the leaders to hear clearly from God uh, in going through this, this process, uh, and I would be thankful to know the congregation is praying together with us toward that end. Uh, church, as we close our time of worship this morning, I, I just want to encourage you, if you have felt God stirring in your heart to, uh, to, to, to let Jesus into that place in your heart, uh, I'm going to be over here to the, my left, your right, and I'd be happy to talk with you more about that. I'd love to celebrate with you. I'd love to encourage you. Uh, I'd love to pray with you. So if that's you, uh, feel free to just stop up. Nothing formal. It can be completely casual. I'll give you a little fist bump. And now my wife is giving me the wrap it up sign. So I'm going to wrap it up. Let's close our time of worship with this word, this benediction. Come, O children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may say good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Church, turn away from evil. Turn from violence. Seek peace. Seek Jesus and pursue it. Go in peace.